This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. Picture this for one minute. It's September 30th, 1965, in West Philadelphia. Larry Miller is a teenager. 16 to be exact, and he's about to make a mistake he'll live with for the rest of his life. I was 16 years old. I was drunk on cheap wine. I was angry because one of my gang members had been killed, and, you know, myself and a couple other people decided that we were going to go out and look for revenge. Mr. White just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He did nothing. It was totally unwarranted and senseless, and um, I regret it every day. Larry Miller was 16 years old when he shot and killed Edward White. He was locked up for 14 years, and for a lot of people, that's the end of the story. But for Larry, it was just the beginning. Larry studied hard in prison, and when he was released, he got his accounting degree. He climbed the corporate ladder at places like Campbell's Soup and Kraft Foods, So he was eventually hired as the first black vice president at Nike. Now he's the chairman of the Jordan brand. Imagine that. You see, Michael Jordan might be the face of the company, but Larry is the guy responsible for getting all those shoes in your closet. This guy turned the Jumpman logo into billions of dollars. But to do all that, he had to hide something. He had to hide his past. After 56 years, he's finally starting to talk about it right now. Here's my conversation with Jordan Brand Chairman Larry Miller. Your story is such a a walk of redemption, and forgiveness is also a theme that is something that we're all in constant search for to a degree. But I'm curious, Larry, have you forgiven yourself? You know, I think I've had to forgive myself over the years, or at least try to, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to move forward. I feel and I hope that, you know, God has forgiven me. And now that the family has forgiven me, uh, I feel, you know, um, that that was the most I could have asked for. Larry, I've known of you for a very long time. We have a lot of people that we know in common. Uh, I've read your book. I paid attention to the arc of your career. How the hell have you lived with this for 40 plus years? It hasn't been easy, Jay, Um, uh, especially keeping it in, especially not opening up and talking about it or sharing any of it. You know, that's that made it, I think, even even worse for me. Uh, But at the same time, you know, I had to I I believe that I had to move forward and try to, you know, continue to change my life and and accomplish some positive things in life. So even though it was there and kind of hanging over me all the time, I still felt like, you know, I've, I've got to move forward. I've got to try to, to make this life and redeem myself the way I, I feel like I should have. And so it, it was, it was a tough thing to carry around for all those years. And again, especially with the fear of being found out. So there was a pivotal moment when you were applying for a job with Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm that you decided from then on to keep your past a secret. Can you give us a little bit more detail about that moment and what happened? Back then, uh, my my undergraduate degree is in accounting. And back then, um, there was the big eight accounting firms. And 
if you didn't get hired by one of the big eight firms, then you weren't successful. So, and Arthur Anderson was actually the one that I was drawn to. Went through their whole process, went, uh, spent the day there interviewing with a number of people. Um, and all day in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, should I share my story with these folks? And, you know, I kept waiting, waiting. Finally, I got to the end of the day and, um, there was like the main hiring manager and I went in his office and sat down and I'm thinking to myself, it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to share with him. So I kind of get into my story and I'm telling him and I could see his face changing as I'm talking to him. And I was like, okay, this is not going well. This is not going how I had hoped it would, but I get through my story and, um, and he said, wow, you know, that's, that's amazing. And I'm sure you're going to do great. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a, an envelope and he said, Hey, I had a, an offer here already to give you, but I can't give it to you now. He's like, I can't take that chance. I can't take that, that chance that something happens in the future. And I was like, okay, I understand. But at that point, I decided that, um, I wasn't going to share this anymore. If it came out or if somebody asked, I would, open up, but I wasn't going to volunteer the information anymore. And I didn't. And, um, and from that point, my, like my first job out of college was Campbell soup company. And the application said, have you been convicted of a crime in the last five years? And the answer was no, because it had been longer than five years. So, um, I was able to answer that. No. And going forward, I, I never lied about anything. I just didn't, didn't open up about it. Larry, do you think keeping your secret was important to your success? Uh, I think I, 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 I do. I think, uh, you know, had I shared this early on, I don't think that I would have gotten some of the opportunities that I did. But that being said, uh, to me, you know, that's one of the reasons, again, that, that, uh, that I decided to do this is that, you know, maybe um, this story can change people's perception of formerly incarcerated people and maybe inspire some willingness to give people a chance that have, uh, you know, have a criminal record. And what I would say to uh, 16-year-old Larry Miller out there that's maybe thinking about or about to do something stupid or crazy is that, you know, hopefully this story will um, help them to maybe cause them to stop and think for a minute and stop and think that they might be about to do something that they're going to regret for the rest of their life. Look, the one thing I hope you appreciate about my podcast is that we don't sugarcoat anything. The reality is Larry Miller murdered someone and he has remorse for that. But the one thing I've learned in my life is that two things could be true at the same time. You see, Larry Miller, the executive, he went on to build a brand that is worth $4 billion and is also a symbol of black culture. Or at least that's how Kanye West puts it. Jordans need to be part of reparations. You can't tell a black man not to wear Jordans. Not wear Jordans. <laughs> that's, that's part that's, that's in our DNA. After famously rejecting a deal with Nike years ago, Ye is once again knocking on Larry's door looking to collaborate. After the break... Larry talks about what it would take for Nike to partner with Kanye West once again. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. 
Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Well, I mean, we keep evolving if we're lucky enough to be here, and I I really commend you, Larry, on on how you've taken the steps to continue to push yourself past your limits, uh, one that you've dealt with for a very long time. And I, I want to transition that thought process to the brand, Brand Jordan. And I'm, I'm curious about this one because it's probably the most culturally relevant brand there is today in all of sports um, and just in business, period. And I was paying attention about, you know, a couple of weeks ago where Kanye posted a picture of the brand Jordan logo. And I obviously know that he is with Adidas, them coming out with Yeezys and things of that sort. But is there any thought to collaborating once again with a guy like Kanye? Cause I even saw Marcus Jordan, Michael Jordan's son talk about, Hey, let's get Kanye and pops as he referred to on his IG story back in the room, back in the lab, figuring it out. Is there any thought to that? I, I would never say never. I think um, what Kanye's done with Adidas is commendable. I think uh, he's an incredibly creative and talented person. Um, I wish he had uh, stayed with Nike. That would have been great. Um, I, I can't say that that's not that will not happen. Um, I can't. I don't know that it will, but I can't say that it won't happen. That we would at some point um, be able to do something with. With Kanye, I, I, I can't say that it's absolutely not going to happen. What do you think it takes to partner with somebody like Kanye to build a successful product line? You know, I, I think there are a couple things. I think one, um, you know, you have to be willing and open to taking his input. But then you also have to be able to, from the other side, 
manage the expectations and the limits that are there. Because, you know, uh, someone like Kanye may have um, this incredible idea that's fantastic. Taking that idea and making it a reality is uh, is something that could be, you know, much more of a challenge. So I think it's it's really figuring out how to marry that creativity with the reality of, of what can and can't be done. Larry, can you tell me how you do that? Because I've been around him before where he's <laughs> just popped off some random ideas. And I remember looking at my friend Scooter Braun thinking, oh my God, that, that was that was genius. And I want to go activate it right away. But then I hear three or four or five other genius ideas in another span of 15 minutes right after that. And I'm like, how do I even begin to prioritize where to start from? How, how do you do that? Well, that is a challenge. And again, I haven't worked directly with Kanye on product at that level. So I can't speak on, um, you know, how he operates and how that, that works. But to me, someone that has the creativity that he has, like I said, there's got to be a balancing side to that to say, okay, yeah, that's great. But when we look at these ideas, here's the one, here are the ones that we can, we can actually make work. Here are the ones that we can actually bring to reality. So I, I think there's a, like I said, there's a balance between that creativity and the reality of, of what can and can't be done. If anyone knows what can and what can't be done, it's Larry Miller. After the break, he explains how he took another icon, Michael Jordan, and turned his idea into a billion dollars. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The trajectory of your life has been pretty incredible. Um, you know, reading about you attending a dinner with the Clintons during Bill's presidency, hearing your relationship with David Stern, hearing that you have Kanye West on speed dial, 
And then ultimately, look, there's this connection for us too, Larry. You know, I took Michael Jordan's locker. I, growing up, w- wanting to be like Michael, right? Even though I was six <laughs> one, six two, I couldn't be six six with a forty three inch vertical. But you were very, very <laughs> visible with the greatest athlete to ever live, potentially. Take me into that. Take me into the first time you met Mike. Take me into how you became the president of Brand Jordan. I started at Nike as the head of apparel in North America, which was about a about a billion dollar business at the time. And at the time, MJ was about to retire from the Bulls for for the last time, so that you could get his locker. Um, <laughs> um, but he uh, he he was about to retire from the Bulls, and we uh, trust me, Larry. I wish he didn't retire. I would have been. I would probably still been playing. <laughs> but we uh, we're talking about okay, you know. So what happens now that MJ is retiring? And um, spent a lot of time with with MJ on you know developing those strategies and on how we were going to, you know, kind of take this and, and actually create a brand. And um, uh, fortunately, we were able to do that. Uh, but he, he's been and continues to be extremely involved in the business. And, you know, I always tell people he's kind of like our secret sauce because he adds a perspective that nobody else in the world can add. I mean, it's Michael Jordan. And he, um, he the way he looks at it is that the brand represents him. So he pushes us just like he, you know, pushed his teams with playing basketball. He pushes us and continued to push us to be as best, the best we can possibly be. And, you know, our goal was to create the Michael Jordan of brands. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we did, we did pretty good. We've been pretty successful, but he's, he's been extremely, extremely involved in it. And I'm just glad that I was able to be a part of it. Yeah. I think you've done more than okay, Larry. Can you take me back to, to those initial meetings that you had with Michael, like what were some of the uh, initial objectives that you guys had to attack as a brand was being built? Well, you know, there were, there were a number of things. First of all, you know, we had to develop what our, you know, what, what strategy are we going to approach with this? And one of the things that we focused on was what we referred to as scarcity. So, you know, it's like, we want to put a certain amount of pairs of shoes in the market. And once they're gone, they're gone. And so once consumers realize that once these shoes are gone, that increased the value that made people want them. Uh, and that was our, our goal was to build this brand that was coveted. There's certain products of Jordan. You can't just go in the store and buy them. If they're gone, you can't get them anymore. And that was part of the strategy that we, we, we worked. And I think that also, that strategy helped us to build brand heat around the rest of our products. So if we have a hot product that we know is going to be gone um, and everybody knows it's going to be gone, that brand enthusiasm and excitement then spread to the rest of our products. So it's like, hey, if I can't have this one, I'll get this. And we talked a lot about how we wanted this brand to show up in the marketplace, what type of advertising and who our core consumer was. I mean, there were, we spent a ton of time early on just defining what the business was going to be and how we were going to build it. And um, like I said, one of the keys for us was really focusing in on our core consumer and making sure that everything we did was targeted to that core consumer. Who was the core consumer, Larry? For us, the core consumer was... Uh, inner city kid who is a basketballer, uh, who's the, a leader on the court, who is a style kid off the court, because we felt like if we could get that kid 
that kid kind of sets trends and other people are w- looking at what that kid does and they want to follow that. So our goal was to connect to that kid who is like the leader. And that was who we targeted from, from the very beginning. Our thought was we get him and he'll, you know, we'll get everybody else because they're looking at, at him. I, I listened to Kanye. He was on a Nick Cannon podcast and uh, he said that Jordans need to be a part of reparations. You can't tell a black man not to wear Jordans. <laughs> not to wear Jordans. Not to wear Jordans. I, I him say that. But that comes because of that growing up. Uh, did you guys expect that type of attention and recognition within the black community? From Jordans? Uh, yeah, because a lot of what we did was targeted at the black community, the brown communities. We targeted the, that kid who, because again, for us, I think that kid kind of helps to set style and fashion trends from the inner city. And and so we specifically targeted that kid. And, you know, Kanye, I, I, I was glad that Kanye made that comment for huh. sure. But I think, um, you know, there is a connection in the black community with the Jordan brand. And I think a lot of it, the majority of it is based on Michael Jordan. I mean, he, Michael Jordan at the time was, you know, the coolest guy out there. All the, all the guys wanted to be him and all the girls wanted to be with him. So, you know, it's like, why wouldn't we want to have that person as our, uh, as our muse for our brand? As a black executive for one of the most iconic black athletes that this world has ever seen, how important was it for you to get it right, Larry? Like, how important was it for you to build that iconic brand to inspire millions of young minorities that they can achieve the ultimate goal if they think about how they position themselves in the marketplace? It was extremely important to me because, and I, I always um, have had the perspective that there are people that look like me watching me. And if they see me able to do something, then, you know, that would maybe inspire them to feel like they could do it as well. And so I've always, always taken that perspective. Um, when I started at Nike, I was the first black vice president in the history of the company. And, um, wow. I didn't know that until I got there, but that added a little bit of pressure for me because I'm thinking now, you know what, I've got to succeed here because I'm opening a door for some other folks. And that's the way I've always approached it. It's like, if I'm in a position where I can move into a role that's a visible role that can, you know, show folks that someone that looks like me can do this, that's something that I've always thought about and always focused on. Larry, when I first found out that you and I were going to be doing this sit down, uh, I had a question that popped into my head the moment I found out because I thought about the word pressure and, you know, Coach K would always talk to me about, Jay, don't look at it as pressure, look at it as opportunity. And I said, okay, I understand that. But the opportunity that was in front of you with the greatest athlete to ever live, the greatest basketball player in Michael Jordan, and then also another guy in Phil Knight who created the Nike brand, talk me through how you dealt with that pressure in your relationships with both of them, including Phil Knight. My approach to working with folks like Phil Knight and Michael Jordan and Paul Allen has been, um, if I just go along with what you say, or just, then I'm not doing my job. My job is to tell you what I think is right. Now, if you decide we're going to do something else, then that's what we'll do because, you know, you're the boss. But I feel like my responsibility is to say, hey, 
I don't think we should do that, or this is what I think we should do. That's helped to develop the relationships with folks like that, where they know I'm going to tell them what I think is right. And I think they appreciate that. But those people, I mean, the people you you mentioned, Phil Knight, Michael Jordan, they're folks that um, that I think are not just great people, great business people, but they're great people as well. I mean, you know, they're folks who who've been, for me, supportive, encouraging, and people I feel like I could turn to with um, issues or questions that I have. Um, when things are kind of shaky, I could, I felt like I could always go to Phil Knight and say, hey, Phil, this is what's happening and here's what I need in terms of help or here's what I think we should do. And the same with MJ, uh, you know, the same with whether it's Paul Allen or David Stern or Adam Silver. You know, I've always had the kind of relationships with those folks where, you know, I'm going to share with them what I think is right. And I think there's a, a appreciation for that. Do you still live your life with any regret? Uh, you know, I still, I do. I still, you know, every day I regret um, you know, taking the life of a young black man. I, you know, I wish I could go back to that moment and, and walk away or let him walk away. Um, and so I do think about that and regret that, but I also figured out how to not let that, um, debilitate me or stop me from trying to move forward and trying to put myself in a position where I can help even more people. So, so yeah, I, I do have regrets. Um, but I, uh, I look at them as, as learnings as well. Um, you know, I heard, uh, BJ Armstrong say something one time about MJ. He said, uh, Michael Jordan never lost a game. He either won or he learned. Mm. And to me, that's, you know, if there's something negative or something that doesn't go right or something that, you know, a mistake that you made, then to me, if you learn from that, then you didn't lose. Well, I'll tell you one thing I've learned from this conversation. I am appreciative and I am thankful. And I'm sure a lot of people are thankful uh, about how courageous you are to first off, talk openly about this because you didn't have to do this, Larry. You didn't have to come out and, and tell the truth about what happened and, and speak people through the process. And I think throughout that process, it's inspiring to hear that, you know, you are not going to be defined by mistakes that you make in your life. So I thank you for the type of example that you've been able to set and how you're leading with the next step of your life. I, I really do. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, oh, I appreciate that, Jay. And uh, thank you for having me on and giving me an opportunity to, to share this story. Um, I, I, I truly appreciate it. Larry Miller's new book is called Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom. He wrote that book with his daughter, but first, he had to tell her about that deep, dark secret that happened when he was a teenager. On Thursday, exclusively for the Limits Plus subscribers, I asked Larry about what it was like to tell his daughter about his biggest mistake. Hit the link in the description of this episode to subscribe now. A big thank you to Larry Miller and his whole team. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney, Lena Sunsgiri, Barton Gerwood, Brent Bachman, Rachel Neal, Yolanda Sanguini. Our executive producer is Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Charlotte Riggi. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. We're back next week. Thank you to everybody. Let's keep it moving and stay positive. I'm Jay Williams.
This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.